KPFBR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is May the 6th, 2017. What fresh hell this week. <laughs> I want to escape the trumpery. I will do anything. Uh, oh, the state of trumpery. Uh, why? Why are we required uh, to, to what is it, uh, take all our energy uh, watching this, this show, this clown show? Uh, I can't figure out. Well, uh, I think I'll just leave it to the clever others uh, this week. I want to uh, recommend to you the uh, the writers in the New Yorker, Jill Lepore, L-E-P-O-R-E, one of my favorites. Her piece in Talk of the Town is called The Strategy of Truth. It's fascinating. Uh, the article, the Talk of the Town essay on the 100 days is by the editor of the New Yorker, David Remnick, uh, now, David Remnick is, if not my hero, my reference point, let's say. Uh, he took up the whole uh, one, two, three, four pages. Usually, Talk of the Town has about five items. This time, he took the whole thing. Let's, uh, let's see. He, uh, he seems to pin it down. The new normal, right? Uh, anyway, he does say there is hope. He winds up finishing, he says, there's still time, still time for younger politicians to gather themselves for the 2018 midterms, for the 2020 presidential race. One well-established figure, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, just published This Fight is Our Fight, a book on the decline of middle-class prospects and conservative ideology ever since the Reagan era. My date is always 1980. That's, that's, when, that's when everything fell down. I remember uh, uh, I took a picture of my two sons standing outside my little house here in Berkeley, my little brown shingle mansion that I lost shortly after that. Uh, they've got, oh, one of them has an apple on his head and the other one I think a musical instrument I don't know anyway their message there it says jelly bean is a lemon 
And my younger son said to me uh, some years later, he said, you're the one who said Ronald Reagan could never be elected. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm the victim of a liberal education. I thought progressive meant that we moved ahead anyway. Uh, David Remnick talks about Elizabeth Warren, the uh, Massachusetts senator. She kind of has the the uh, the seat of Ted Kennedy, the uh, senator from Massachusetts, Democrat. Anyway, uh, Elizabeth wrote a manifesto, The Audacity of Hope. It augurs for higher political ambition, I think. I think she says she's, well, we're hoping she might throw in her. Uh, well, I saw her the other night on one of the, uh, what is that, cheerful shows. And she said, uh, well, she said she she had hopes. I thought she looked very, very shaky. But never mind. Uh, David Remnick says that uh, Warren came by our offices last week. That's the offices at the New Yorker magazine for an hour long interview. While she made these ritual demurals about a run for the presidency, she spoke with a combative focus on precisely the issues that Clinton ceded to Trump in the 2016 race. Warren will be 69 when it comes time to make a decision. Ooh. But it would be foolish to think that she's not among those who are testing the waters. He goes on to say the clownish veneer of Trumpism conceals its true danger. Trump's way of lying is not a joke. It is a strategy. A way of clouding our capacity to think, to live... In a realm of truth, it is said that each epoch dreams the one to follow. I will repeat that. Mm. Each epoch dreams the one to follow. I hope those dreams are green. (laughs) The task now is not merely to recognize this presidency for the emergency it is and to resist its assault on the principles of reality and the values of liberal democracy but to devise a future, to debate, to hear one another, to organize, preserve, and revive precious things. I myself see a lot of workshops starting up about how to listen, how to listen, how to stop simply uh, talking at each other. That's a fault that I have. I'm always very ashamed when I realize that uh, I have not, I have not understood fully what the other person thinks and feels. Uh, Now, Elizabeth Warren, uh, I think, you know, notice that Trump is 70 this year and described as the oldest candidate. I I think we must reserve judgment. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is hopeful. Uh, I think, what is it? I, I think we cannot put all our our hopes, all our uh, apples in one basket. I think that grassroots organization is the secret. I think personally it's going to go state by state, right? Jerry Brown, a great letter. He used to be here on KPFA, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, 
write Jerry and ask him how it's going to be. Um, the best thing I found from Jill Lepore, that's L-E-P-O-R-E, in the June 5th New Yorker is a terrific article on the strategy of truth. Yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, <laughs> imagine, yes, if one woman told the truth about her life, the whole world would split open. Anyway, here's what uh, Jill Lepore has to say. She says, Roger Ailes died recently at the age of 77. During a week when the ground shook beneath a stumbling Donald Trump. These two men were in many ways near in age and appetites, in temper and coarseness. They were also in many things far apart. Intelligence and energy, talent and purpose. Ailes was formidable. Trump brittle. Ailes' decline began last summer when he was forced out of Fox News. Trump's fall, if he falls, is still to come. <laughs> you, you may remember, you remember that President Trump said that, uh, uh, what is it? Well, he, he excused all the men connected with Fox. Uh, he said that they, they were all good people and that they had been, uh, you know, that it was a scam and that, of course, uh, <laughs> the women, the women were out to get him. Okay. Uh, at times it has seemed, says Jill Lapore, as if these two men were Humpty and Dumpty tumbling off a wall. This wall is one they had built together to divide one half of the country from the other. A house divided. Yes, indeed, that's what's happening. I think it's called a civil war. The measure of the world, says Jill. The measure of the world they made lies in its distance from the world into which they were born. When the question, then, of whether democracy could be defended without violating the freedoms on which it rests was a matter of pain debate. I remember, yes, I do remember. I remember in my college, uh, the uh, history professors asked us if we would allow a communist speaker to come to the college and speak. And we said, oh, yes, just so long as there was someone to, uh, uh, you know, to uh, speak back at him, to argue with him. Uh, they said, no, that's not the question we asked you. Uh, it's not about allowing both points of view. Uh, it's about the first question, whether or not you want a communist to speak on campus uh, without any, any response. Uh, now that, of course, is what we have now. The Internet people can listen to what they want to listen to, hear what they want to hear, and they never, never have to listen to anybody else's opinion. And, of course, as we know, uh, opinions and facts <laughs> have become difficult to distinguish the one from the other. Uh, anyway, when Ailes and Trump were born... Uh, Let's see, Ailes was born in Ohio, 1940. Weeks later, President Roosevelt gave a commencement address in Virginia. Roosevelt, FDR, said every generation of young men and women in America has questions to ask the world. 
But every now and again in the history of the Republic, a different kind of question presents itself. A question that asks not about the future of an individual or even of a generation, but about the future of the country. He was arguing against America Firsters. That's what they were called, America Firsters. We called them isolationists. Uh, they wanted the United States to be an island, a vision that FDR declared to be a nightmare. Quote, the nightmare of a people lodged in prison, handcuffed, hungry, and fed through the bars from day to day by the contemptuous, unpitying masters of other continents. <laughs> That's fascinating that Roosevelt would speak that way. It took him long enough to come to the party. Uh, he wouldn't even let uh, refugee Jews into this country, and he, of course, is the one who put the Japanese into the into the camps. Uh, you don't you don't get. Uh, Jesus Christ in the White House, but <laughs> there, there are there are uh, choices, right? Anyway, Roosevelt had been trying to gain support for his entry into the war in Europe, says Jill Lapore, uh, you know, talking to uh, Winston Churchill. Uh, FDR knew that it was possible to push too hard in 1917 to marshal support for another war, Woodrow Wilson. Back in the day, Woodrow Wilson had created a propaganda department, a fiction manufactory that stirred up so much hysteria and so much hatred of Germany that Americans took to calling hamburgers Salisbury steaks. They lynched a German immigrant. Any of this sound familiar, folks? On the way to the station today, I saw a young woman with two children walking down the street in a hijab, and I... Before I could think, before I could even think, I thought to myself, yes, I, I stopped myself, not thinking, stopped myself. And I said, if, you know, if I could, I'd take that damn thing off because I don't want her to get hurt. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, sometimes I begin to feel as if I may be one of the, those that we called the good Germans back in the day, back in the 1940s. The good Germans, uh... You know, the ones who said they didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, even if they could, well, even if they could smell the smoke. In any case, uh, these days, too many Americans are full of shame. Shame before the world. Although, <laughs> there seems to be a global trend in sympathy with the authoritarianism that's on its way. Here it comes. It is happening now. So many citizens voted for that shameless businessman, that sociopath, an empty vessel, right? Uh, okay. When I was a schoolgirl, we defined fascism, or my history teacher defined fascism, as the point at which there is no separation, no line drawn between business, money, profits, you know, and government, that is... <laughs> The uh, men with the money rule, uh, you know, government is for sale. It's textbook fascism. Anyway, the hell with the general welfare. Uh, there are so many historical uh, 
clans. It's all familiar, these uh, dystopias. This, well, the dynastics, I think, uh, well, I'm thinking of all the incompetent, unelected children in the White House in those absurd positions of power. I think of the late Roman emperors. Uh, I I don't know uh, whether it's to be a Greek tragedy or a Roman farce. Take your pick. Name your poison, boys and girls. Anyway, see what else Jill has to say before we leave her article. I was going to say that those of you who are school teachers will find that the the essay by uh, David Remnick in the May Day issue of the New Yorker would be my pick for what to teach your your students. I used to have a course uh, my senior year in high school. Wonderful old teacher. He put the chairs in a circle the first time I saw a teacher do that, and he would sit there and be delighted. Oh, say when Truman fired the General MacArthur, <laughs> when MacArthur acted like a, a demagogue, and he told us that uh, one one hand would uh, not wash the other, that we would be in balance because, of course, there were too many people at the top, and they would keep each other, uh, uh, if not safe, at least reasonable, reasonable. Uh, anyway, let's see. The American Firsters, they were the ones who said, just hang on, hang on, don't let anybody in, and uh, don't give them anything. Don't give them the money for the refugees or for Planned Parenthood, for the women all around the world who need those. Oh, those little birthing kits. I remember those. Dollar and 49 cents to women all around the world. Something that could save your life when you're having a baby. Anyway. Okay. Salisbury steaks. You remember? Uh, remember how we got rid of French fries, right? Uh John Dewey, another candidate for presidency, he called this kind of thing conscription of thought. Now, that was a horse's bit crammed into the people's mouth. The bitterness of that experience determined a new generation of journalists to avoid all manner of distortion and error. I hope. In 1923, when Henry Luce and... Britain hadn't founded Time. Uh, the first name for Time magazine was Facts. I like that. Facts. <laughs> the magazine hired a small army of women to check every fact. Of course, women. Uh, uh, the editor here says, uh, yes, that uh, <laughs> the New Yorker instructed uh, its people to do the same Add fact-checking to your list of chores, he instructed them. Yes. 1929, Henry Luce hired as an editor of his new magazine, Fortune, a poet named Archibald MacLeish. He had fought in the First World War and then lived in Paris, where he wrote poems about places where lay, quote, this is Archibald Ah, places where they, quote, 
Upon the darkening plain, the dead against the dead, and on the silent ground, the silent slain. He worked at Fortune until 1938. Okay, nine years. FTR appointed him Librarian of Congress in 1939. McLeish said, democracy is never a thing done. Democracy is always something that a nation must be doing. I see, it's a verb, uh, not a noun, I see. McLeish believed that writers had an obligation to fight against fascism in the battle for public opinion, a battle that grew more urgent after the publication in 1940 of Edmund Taylor's book, The Strategy of Terror. He was the Paris bureau chief for the Chicago Times. Now, Taylor reported firsthand on the propaganda campaign waged by Nazi agents to divide the French people by leaving them uncertain about what to believe or whether to believe anything at all. Hitler had written in Mein Kampf, his <laughs> notorious book, uh, he uh, wrote, quote, Yes, oh dear, oh dear. Uh, uh, most people, yes, quote, are more easily victimized by a large than by a small lie since they sometimes tell petty lies themselves. But they would be ashamed to tell big ones. Taylor called propaganda the invisible front. Roosevelt decided that he could delay his assault on that front no longer. October 1941, he issued an executive order establishing a new government information agency, the Office of Facts and Figures. He appointed McLeish to head it. <laughs> Facts and Figures. Maybe we could try that again. Uh, I'll write to Elizabeth Warren and tell her we need a, a fact checker uh, in the White House anyway. McLeish insisted that the duty of government is to provide a basis for judgment. Okay, okay, now let's see. Provide a basis for judgment. That is, uh, these guys are supposed to present the choices to the people and see what the people think. McLeish goes on to say, quote, and when it goes beyond that, it goes beyond the prime scope of its duty. Under his leadership, the office mainly printed pamphlets, including Divide and Conquer, which explained how foreign agents weaken a nation's resolve by undermining confidence in institutions like elections and the press, and by raising fears of internal enemies like immigrants and Jews. Still, some reporters suspected that the agency was nothing more than a propaganda machine, you know. Like the one that Joseph Goebbels had going anyway. McLeish was worried, too. In April 1942, he spoke at a meeting of the Associated Press to counter the strategy of terror. He proposed a new strategy. This strategy, I think, is neither difficult to find nor difficult to name, he wrote. It is the strategy which is appropriate to our cause and to our purpose. The strategy of truth. Well, I think we should try it. Try everything else. The strategy, well, no, that's my, my uh, footnote here. Anyway, <laughs> McLeish, Archibald McLeish goes on to say, 
uh, the strategy of truth is that which opposes itself to the frauds and the deceits by which our enemies have confused and conquered other peoples. The simple and clarifying truths by which a nation such as ours must guide itself. Uh, but the strategy of truth is not devoid of strategy. It is not enough in this war of hoaxes and delusions and perpetuated lies to be merely honest. It is necessary also to be wise. I was thinking, my footnote here, oh, I used to say that the job of those of us who uh, ramble on here at KPFA is to work for the better man and the wiser woman. And I also think we should distinguish between knowledge and wisdom. Uh, to know is not always to do. Anyway, critics, says this article by Jill Lepore, critics called Archibald MacLeish naive. Winning a war requires deception. Uh, to some degree, FDR, Roosevelt, agreed. In June 42, replace the Office of Facts and Figures with the Office of War Information. Ah, Archibald MacLeish left. The agency drifted. Much of the staff resigned in protest. Ah, when a former advertising director for Coca-Cola was hired, a departing writer made a mock poster that read, Step right up and get your four delicious freedoms. It's a refreshing war. In 1946, the year that Donald Trump was born, McLeish published a poem called Brave New World. It was about Americans' retreat from the world. Quote, freedom that was a thing to use. They made a thing to save and staked it in and fenced it round like a dead man's grave. A lifetime later, Barack Obama greeted Roger Ailes at the White House. <laughs> Obama said, quote, I see the most powerful man in the world is here. My footnote here says he's careful not to compliment Ailes, just to define him. Ailes answered, uh, Don't believe what you read, Mr. President. I started those rumors myself. Indeed, indeed. Actually, Ailes had a sense of humor in spite of being a perfectly vile individual. Uh, other rumors that Ailes helped start uh, the charge coming from Trump that Obama is not an American... I don't know much about that, but it certainly does seem like a, a strange trick. It's one of the big lies. Nobody would believe it, but that's why it worked anyway. Uh, it went on, yes, science is a hoax, history is a conspiracy, news is fake. It's not always possible to sort out fact from fiction, but to believe that everything is a lie is to know nothing. Ailes won't be remembered as the man who got Trump elected president. He will be remembered as a television producer who understood better than anyone how to divide a people. Trump's presidency, long after it ends, 
will stand as a monument to the error, the error of a strategy of terror. Fascinating stuff, folks. Absolutely fascinating. I think that uh, Jill Lepore is one of those women, uh, one of the writers that I admire. Finally, there are enough women commentators and journalists to, uh, what is that, compete, match the men. I think of Katha Pollard in The Nation and so many of them. Uh, I think, yes, David Remnick is my my pick for the uh, essay of the moment. His essay really does uh, define the first 100 days. They were, of course, nonsense. Uh, the writers here uh, I'll talk more about next week I want to talk about uh, a new a new play called A Doll's House Number 2 you remember Nora in A Doll's House uh, 150 years later there's a new play about uh, Mrs. Helmer apparently Nora had a daughter who grew up that's going to be this generation's story. This has been Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Back next week at the same time. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. You are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 